Hello and welcome back to part two of the Irish Football Fans podcast review of 2022, a year in Irish international football. I'm joined again by Mark Kennedy of Hawkeye Sidekick and Philip Flanagan of the Bottomless Pit of Football as we complete our review of the year that was 2022. Now, in our last episode, we went through each game that the Republic of Ireland men's team played last year. But for this episode, we're actually going to drill down a little bit and we've picked out our top five positives and negatives from the year. Philip and Mark, Happy New Year. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, Happy New Year to you all guys, all followers of the podcast. Hope you had a good Christmas. We'll start with what I feel was one of the negatives from last year. Since Stephen Kenny has took over the national side, there seems to have been a constant churn in the backroom staff. Last year, we went through two coaches Anthony Barry and John Eustace were both appointed to the national side and both uh, moved on to pastures new. Now, there's nothing really the manager can do about this. Sometimes when you have a high-profile, highly qualified coach, the chance always is that they're going to be approached by other teams to join the, the backroom staff. But since the summer, since John Eustace moved on, there hasn't been any replacement coach appointed to his role. The opposition analyst, Stephen Rice, was drafted in as a stopgap to replace him on at least a temporary basis. But as things stand, that temporary basis is six months and counting. When you think back across Stephen Kelly's time in charge, we've had Alan Kelly and Damien Duff join and, and leave the national team set up. And it doesn't look like this situation is going to be resolved anytime soon. Mark, uh, what do you think about this? It's a worrying development, I would say, Joe. I suppose I fully agree about your opening paragraph in terms of manager being helpless not to do anything about these opportunities that have come. Anthony Barry went to Belgium just before a friendly game with Belgium. Awkward. But then John Hughes is coming in. I think it was a nice appointment, but I suppose from a Stephen Kenny perspective in FAI, at least they're identifying guys here that are being headhunted by other teams. So I suppose they're... Talent scouting for coaches is good, but it does give, you know, an awful lot of great concern after John Hughes left for Birmingham City. There has been no real tangible link of a backroom staff member going to be added to the ticket. And I mean, for Stephen Rice, he's double jobbing at the moment, as you've quite rightly said. And I think we definitely need a little bit more backroom staff support for Stephen Kenny. Just given some of the performances during the year, I started quite on a positive note, but I think some of the performances I think that we'll allude to later on in the podcast, it did necessitate maybe another experienced backroom staff member to come in. But maybe it's indicating that prospective guys are just waiting to see what happens at the start of this year, and particularly on a um, European Championship campaign qualification to see is it going to be more of a prospective, is a manager going to be still there or not? So I think there's a bit of instability still there. So. You know, it's never good, I would say, uh, Joe, in terms of that. And it can't help in terms of the squad, the morale, and also the fact that there's been no new significant backroom recruit this year. Yeah, it's a good point that you think, oh, well, the draw that we've gotten for the European Championships, it's a bit of a double-edged sword when it comes to approaching talents for the backroom staff. On the one hand... You know, it's a massive challenge facing the likes of France and the Netherlands. On the other hand, do you really want to be on the end of what could be uh, some embarrassing results? I agree with everything you said. I just don't think it's an attractive job at the moment. It probably hasn't been for the last year because 
at stages, Kenny looked like he was on the way out the door and maybe nobody really wanted to take a chance. I think there's a couple of other factors that we may be overlooking involved in it as well. I think one, well, might not be hugely important, but I, I would imagine money will come into it. That's not often spoke about. I know Kenny's on a good number, but there's not a lot of money there from the FAI to possibly attract that top-tier coach that we're looking for. And the other thing is Kenny is is more a coach than a manager first, I'd say. He's very hands-on, especially when it comes to training. And if you're a coach looking to cut your teeth, it mightn't be the, the best dynamic to work under someone like that. You may want to work under a more senior manager where you'll have more leeway when it comes to training sessions and tactics. I don't think you'll get that with Stephen Kenny. I'm not sure if you would. So that could be a part of it as well. But I think mainly it's just, I don't think it's an attractive job at the moment. You know, you mentioned the money. We're still waiting for a shirt sponsor to be announced for the national side. So, I mean, that's contributing to the lack of money available to the FAI to appoint a coach to the national team. Okay, let's have a look at one of the positives now. And um, possibly the biggest positive for Irish football in recent years anyway, and that's the qualification by the women's national side for the World Cup to be had later this year in Australia and New Zealand. It was an amazing night in Scotland, uh, not just the result, but the, the goal scorer coming from Donegal and what had happened recently in, in the, the tragedy increased low. You know, it's, I think, fully justified the fate that the FEI and the players had in Vera Pau, you know, backing her after failing to qualify for the Euros um, and now going to the World Cup for the first time. Yeah, it's amazing to see how an Irish team qualify for a tournament. It's been so long, and I would just say that, for me, I've only started watching women's football in the last two or three years. There's no point trying to spoof and say I've been watching it for the last five or six. You know, my knowledge of women's football is still what I would consider very limited, but I know a, a fair bit now, thanks to yourself and Mark. It's just great to see a team qualify. And I we spoke about it, I think, on the last podcast, the podcast before, and it's something maybe the senior team could look at. It's a team that qualified playing to their strengths and they knew what to do to get the job done. And Vera Powell mentioned that on the pitch at the end of the game, the last game they had. So it's great. Can't wait to jump on the bandwagon in the summer. The one thing I would say is it's it's, it's only come out recently, but it's awful disappointing to see the, the ticket allocation for the first game against Australia. I cannot make head nor tail of that, where they get that percentage out of. Yeah, it's incredibly disappointing, isn't it, Phil? Did I read 5%? Give or take, yeah. Where do they pull a number like that out of? That's incredible. Like I understand 30 goes to sponsors, and then you have another, maybe, whatever, you have a certain amount for the home nation, but where's the rest of it going? Well, I suppose you have sponsors. I mean, it's the opening game of the tournament, isn't it, as well? So yeah. FIFA, obviously, having to sidle in with key sponsors, probably Australian companies, probably executive suites, that sort of thing, I would imagine. I would say Australia being a mad sports nation as well probably would be in attaining some level of tickets as well, particularly municipal wise from a Sydney set residence perspective. So yeah. yeah, it's a very disappointing number now. Granted, not a lot of expats over. Maybe there will be an allocation of tickets more closer to the time, but yeah, very disappointing, I would say, Phil. Yeah. Look, it's something we're all looking forward to in the second half of the year. Hopefully, we can get some positive notice on uh, on ticket allocations. The next negative that I think we have to discuss is the performances against Armenia. 
both home and away. We were opening with uh, what most had expected to be one of the easier games in the group, a team that had come up from Group C. Instead, we played some horrible football. Uh, we barely landed a glove on the opposition and they deserved their win. Uh, with another goal we conceded from distance, I felt that the follow-up performance against the Ukraine was a, a direct follow-on from it. Uh, you could see the confidence had just been knocked out of the team. Although we did recover with the win against Scotland and a, a draw against Ukraine, the away loss to Scotland before the final game against Armenia at home just seemed to produce another kind of drab, dour game of football where we were leading 2 0 with 20 minutes to go, and you got the feeling was, you know, if it was a top level side, then they would shut the game down, keep possession, let the opposition chase the ball. But instead, we conceded two goals, and suddenly Armenia were playing absolutely fantastic football, whereas we were struggling to string two passes together, and we needed a last minute penalty to secure the win. It was the first time where I felt that the crowd weren't behind the manager at the end of the game. I certainly agree. I think at the start of the Nations League campaign, guys, Stephen Kenny went out on record saying that we're here to compete, we're here to really do well, maybe putting a bit of pressure on these players to produce, and then Yerevan never really materialised. I mean, open half fives, we were in control. Armenia, the new manager in charge, soaking up whatever we had to throw at them. Very hot, sultry day in Yerevan. And we basically retreated at a rate of knots and really no surprise again, another long range effort. We've talked about this endlessly in podcast episodes since Stephen Kenny has taken over in terms of our pressing of players outside our box, you know, giving away shooting opportunities from distance came up to roost again. And again, again, there was no immediate response. Bringing defenders up, up front at the end is really, you know, testament here to the game plan, the ethos of Stephen Kenny and this side and what they want to execute. I mean, it was very disappointing. I mean, Diviva, I think he kind of hit nail on the head here. I mean, 2 nil up, coasting. And again, you know, not playing percentage football. And really did cost us. And maybe it's a kind of a stark reminder of our defensive vulnerabilities. For all the good, nice attacking play, the nice, easy on the ice stuff, we still have a defensive leadership vulnerability, particularly at the back. And my hope for the year, really, is that the likes of the Bazunus, the Nathan Collinses, the Josh Collins, John Egan's, these guys really do kind of come to another level in terms of leadership because that should never have happened. 2-0, 2-1 maybe, but the 2-all, we were just in complete disarray. You could see defensive unit were completely rattled after the first goal. That has to stop going into France in March. So maybe it's a stark reminder, fortunate to get in the win, obviously, Joe. But, uh, yeah, I think it's plenty... Plenty of food for thought there, for sure. Yeah, I think what if you look at the year, it was you know the competitive games were bookended by two horrible performances against the team that we should have been taking six points off, or would have thought at the start of the year we would have taken six points off. The first game, like Mark's already mentioned, us like the manner with the goal we gave away. We've done it before. We've we've done it against Luxembourg and a couple of others. It's just the midfield not working hard enough. But again, it's it's not knowing what your what your best midfield is in terms of function so it's great having Cullen there doing everything he does but you need players to compliment him and it's funny because it, it, I was watching the highlights of this game earlier it's 12 and a half minutes of highlights 
on the FAI website for Armenia 1, Ireland 0. 12 and a half minutes. <laughs> I didn't watch them all, but the manner of the goal is very like the manner of goals Liverpool are giving away now, where you have this great defence and you have this these great goalkeepers, but it doesn't really matter if you've nothing in front of them, because players are free to just run into space and take pot shots, which is exactly what the Armenia player did. Like Hendrik kind of half-heartedly turned his back on it. But before that, he was allowed to carry the ball maybe 15, 16 yards, pick his spot, keeper was unsighted, and bury it in. And the same thing has happened throughout Kenny's reign. It's down to not knowing your midfield or not knowing the best way to set your midfield up to protect your defence. And I think looking at both competitive games one side of the year to the other. Like, he still doesn't know. And I think that's the big worry to come out of both of them. And, obviously, we mentioned off air, you know, Conor Horhan was the substitute that came on to supposedly shore things up at 2-0 in the return leg in the Aviva. And we all know how that went. So, it's I think that that's one of the most disappointing aspects of both those games, that there was such a gap in between two of them and there were so many games to try and get it right. And... Kenny hasn't got it right. Now, I will say he played two midfielders in the first game against Armenia and we were crying out for a third. He put a third in, but if you don't have them doing the right things, going out there with the right instructions, it's not going to work. It's something he, he really needs to try and sort out like soon, very soon. Back into the positives. You know, the same night this, we struggled to beat Armenia at home. The under-21s uh, got were playing... We're playing in the second leg of their first playoff for uh, tournaments against Israel, unfortunately going out on, on penalties. Now, obviously we're all disappointed at the results, but this is as close as the under-21s have ever come to qualifying for a tournament. Uh, persistent black mark against the FBI is that the under-21s have always under-delivered, considering the talent that they have available to them. Something that we have to remember about Jim Crawford's side is that a lot of the players who would be starting these games are with the senior team. Gambazunu, Andromeda Daddy, Troy Paris. You could all expect to be mainstays or you know, uh, keystone elements of that under-21 squad. But because they're needed for the senior team, they're, they're unavailable. Aaron Connolly did drop back into the under-21s for the two playoff games and Despite our reservations about it, he actually did play quite well across the two legs. And I look forward to seeing what the next squad of players are able to do for the under 21s. Yeah, penalties is a, it's an unfortunate way to go, to go out or not to qualify. But I suppose the remit of the under 21s and every team under them is to produce players for the senior team. Now, obviously, it would have been great if they qualified for a tournament for the first time. It would have been brilliant. But, I'd be much happier, you know, if it turns out in the long run that we can pick two or three players from that under-21 team to make it up to the senior team. Like, I always think there's a bit of an unrealistic expectation with these U teams because it's not a a definite that nearly every player is going to go straight up to the senior team or eventually play in the senior team. It's usually, like, nearly any of them don't. You might get two or three or four max over the space of a few years. Like, if you look at most of the Irish debutants from say three years back you know a lot of them are 25 24 23 they've, they've well passed the under 21 stage but with this team there's great potential in it we've will smallbone and joe hodge we see what joe hodge is doing now with wolves i'm looking down through the subs here obviously evan ferguson um festio baselli like 
if even if just two of them came through, you know, if Evan Ferguson and Joe Hodge, let's say just say two of them. Now you've got commentary and small one, but just say the two of them came up and and actually like went on to become really good pros at at some fairly top clubs in England, even mid-table Premier League teams. They're two players you could build build your next squad around. So I think the fact that there's a lot of players in that under-21 side that look like they're nearly about to make the next step or are making the next step, I think it's a, it's a positive. It's a huge positive to come out of it. Yeah, I'd agree with you there, Phil. Even the campaign as a whole, Joe and Phil, I think was a huge learning curve for the squad and particularly Jim Crawford as well. I kind of think back to that Montenegro game away, the early concessions of those goals and all there was COVID factors and travel reasons maybe for the slow start but it's a learning curve for these guys to become better players and I think throughout the campaign we saw the evolution we saw the performances increase I mean it's unfortunate penalty shootout loss against Israel but it then taught us a bit of a lesson in terms of the home leg being on the front foot we're maybe a little bit nervy a bit tentative for periods of that game allowing Israel to really settle into the game, open the scoring off a set piece. So I think from that perspective, it's it's good. We're getting to a playoff stage here, but, and it's showing the calibre of talent. And as you say yourself, Joe Rightly, look at the players there in the senior squad that could, would have been eligible for that uh, age group. So look, I think the future is particularly rosy uh, for the Republic of Ireland, given that. Well, we're waiting on the draw for the next uh, understanding of 121 qualifiers, which will come in early February. One of the, the big negatives for me was that we only kept two clean sheets in 2022, and there was only one away win for the men's team. That was in the final game against Malta, where we were basically gifted a goal in a game of two teams who didn't want to be there, coming only a few hours after the opening game of the World Cup. You know, it's a, a truth university recognizes in football that if you concede, then you need to score to win. We're conceding too much and not scoring enough. Only keeping three clean sheets across 12 months and 10 games is not good. Two at home against Lithuania and Scotland and only one away in that final game against Malta. In the games that we conceded, you know, we never came back to get a result. Uh, and, you know, we went ahead against Scotland and ended up losing that game 2-1. So I'm not sure which really the, ma- the manager should focus on, the goals that we're not scoring or the goals that we are conceding, but I definitely think that we need to improve the defence. And when you consider the players that we do have in defence, we're definitely not getting the performances from the players that we have in these games. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Joe. Uh, I think it's a sorry tale. I mean, I thought it was two clean sheets until you mentioned the, the friendly game with Lithuania. <laughs> so uh, I think that tells the tale of the tape really I think from my perspective defensively we have to be so focused in this early stage of the qualification campaign for the Euros like I mean we do have France and the Netherlands in our group and again it's just that's defensively soft underbelly here it's the symptoms you know not pressing and I, w- I wouldn't really critique the goalkeeper and defensive unit as much I think it's a full team effort in terms of our pressing without the ball and I think at times we do lose a bit of focus and do lose a bit of concentration. An awful lot of goals were leaked straight after halftime. I'm thinking of the Ukraine game in in Poland. Nathan Collins is a superb opener. And you think, great, we have a chance here to basically establish ourselves five, ten minutes into the second half. 
they equalised within a minute, two minutes at half time. So I think from that perspective, from Stephen Kenny and the backroom staff, that's a kind of huge area of concern. I think the Norwegian game as well, showing some defensive vulnerabilities, particularly on our set piece. Just who's owning it here from an Ireland defensive perspective here? You know, being kind of bullied off the ball has to be something that we need to be really focusing in on as well. But I would hope anyway that the management, the training sessions here leading up to that French game particularly, hones in defensively because we need to be so defensively compact and well organised for that particular performance. But yeah, it's a disappointing aspect given the opposition that we've been playing, Joe, that we only had three clean sheets in that multi-game, to be perfectly fair, was an absolute no-go of a fixture. So I wouldn't even count that. I'll keep banging the midfield drum because basically it just dictates everything that happens in front and behind them. And it's kind of funny because he said we're conceding too many and we're not scoring enough. In basic terms, that sounds like we're shit at football, but we'll dress it up whatever way we can because we love the manager. Because that's basically what football's about, scoring goals and not conceding. And at the moment, we're doing both pretty badly. But again, I think it comes down to... He doesn't know his first eleven. He might know three or four of them, but he doesn't know he doesn't know what way he wants his teams to attack either. Like if you look at all the, I haven't actually done it, but if, I'm sure if you go through every game this year, it's nearly been a different. Bar two, I think he started Obafemi and Parrot together a few times, but bar that, the link man in midfield has been different nearly every game, or the way he's set up and. Again, it all just it all rolls into one. If you don't know what your midfield is or what they should be doing or how they're going to link the attack, then you're not going to score enough goals and you're going to concede. And it's funny because we score great goals this year, but like they're great goals, they're individualistic goals. You know, Obafemi's goals, Collins' goals. There's only been a couple of goals maybe where we can say the team has worked well for that goal. Like you know, we're three years into it and. While we do understand the basic philosophy of what Kenny wants the team to do, when it comes to our attack, it's hard to kind of define how we attack. There's been games where we've tried to play up through the middle all the time and it hasn't worked, when there's clearly been room down the flanks, and then we've done the opposite and we've gone to the flanks and we haven't really challenged through the middle. But I don't think he's figured it out yet. Like I thought when Benny broke into the team with his speed, I thought he might have settled on that, but then Benny has dropped. Obviously, Obafemi and Parrot work well, but then that kind of links back into midfield. Have you enough legs there? So it's, it just all comes back to not knowing his, his best team for me. Maybe a few leaders on the pitch as well, Phil. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you have to give the young lads a bit of a break as well. Like, you know, mm. they are young, and we saw that with Malumbi in the last game against Armenia where they had to take him off. Like, he, Cullen's a like a great player, he's he's able to pull the strings in midfield, but maybe he's not. He he hasn't got the voice now. Like I haven't seen him that much at Burnley this year, so maybe that's something that's changing. But we definitely need someone in there or someone up front who can be a voice. Coleman doesn't play for us really anymore, so that's gone out the window. Like, is it time to move on the captaincy to someone who would start every game? John Egan, maybe. Because there does seem that void there. I mean, even if you look defensively, like to John Egan. Nathan Collins, Dara Shea, Shane Duffy. When we're going back three on it, who's the leader? Who's the guy that's really barking orders out? Because at times, you know, Shane Duffy has been out of the side. It has been a little bit void. It has been a little bit rudderless in terms of who's that main man back there, even from a defensive perspective. We have Bazuna back there in goal, obviously, but 
I just feel there's still scope for leadership here. And I think the captaincy definitely has to come up here, Phil, particularly if Seamus Coleman is not going to be featuring in many games for Everton. That would deduce that he can't really feature many games for Republic of Ireland. So why have the captain's armband for someone who's not going to start that regularly? So who will you give it to? I, d- I just think Kenny doesn't want to be the man to take the captaincy off, you know, one of our most loved players. But by rights, he should he should be. Or should be thinking about it. Or, or should be... Who's our vice-captain? Have we got a vice-captain? I don't know. It's a good question. Well, like, maybe if he's not willing to take the armband off, you know, off, off Coleman, which is fine put a vice-captain in there, because obviously Coleman knows he's not going to be playing all the time, like other teams do it all the time. I'll always go back to Liverpool because I follow Liverpool in England, but, like, you know, if Henderson's not playing, it goes to Van Dijk, it's very set, you know, and if they're not there, it's Milner, but they're all they're all vocal players. So if Coleman's not there, let Egan be the leader on the pitch. Let him be the voice, because you're right, Mark, like, when you go back and look at the goals, especially that goal against Armenia, that was like, you know, it was our first game in the qualifiers. You see Hendrick run out, and he kind of just half-heartedly turns his back, and Duffy's standing behind him with his hands down by his side. But, like, if you had someone in there dictating or kind of screaming, then there might be more urgency. These types of goals mightn't be given away as easy. Yeah, hopefully New Year, new optimism, new leaf. Definitely against France, we're going to have to be up for it from minute one to 96, 97 minutes, so... Hope springs eternal, I suppose. See, it's just like on that point. You see, I don't think it's the it's it's those kind of games where that thing kind of sorts itself out because it'll be France mm. at home and everyone's going to want to get them stuck in. But when you're going plodding along against Armenia away, there's only a few thousand Irish fans there as loud as they be. They're the um, they're the times you need someone there screaming, rallying the players around like these games that aren't as high high profile. Like you know, it's very easy to get up for France and and Holland at home. Full of Eva under the lights. A lot of people will be watching it around the world. You know, it's a big game. It's France's first competitive game after the World Cup. Like those games are easy to get up for. It's slogging away in in the likes of Malta away at a friendly or something like that that you need it. Yeah, the grief fill as well. Definitely, you have that tune fixture just between Greece away, Gibraltar at home. Who's going to drive it? Who's going to drive the tempo? Who's going to drive the leadership throughout the spine of the team? You know, and hopefully we do see that early. For all his limitations, Glenn Whelan was someone who used to do that a lot. He did. You know, like a very basic player, did his job, that was it. You know, you'd often see him screaming at someone beside him to do his job. So, you know, that's like you brought up, we're we're definitely missing it. That leads us nicely into the next positive, which is the quality that's across the squad in the women's team, from Courtney Brosnan and goals to to Heather Payne up front. There's quality in every position, but there's leaders in every kind of third of the pitch as well. You have Nia Fahey and uh, Louise Quinn in defence. You've got Katie McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan in midfield. You've got Heather Payne and Amber Barrett up front. These aren't just great players, but they are leaders at their clubs. They're leaders on the pitch. Watching them across the qualifiers, you could see that encouragement that you get from playing with players of that world-class quality, which I think Caden McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan are, you know, the difference that it can make when you have to go to somewhere like Scotland and play in a stadium like Hamden Park and get a result. The team only lost one game last year against Russia in the Penetara Cup. They're on a six-game winning streak. The last game that they didn't win 
was the draw against Sweden in in Gothenburg, and we were leading that game. To get a goal from Sweden with 11 minutes ago, it's for them to come away from that game with a point. We've all been watching football long enough to know that these things come in cycles. Teams uh, have peaks and troughs, and this Ireland women's team have been improving all the time. It's not just since fear of how to go over. This has been going on uh, since that meeting in Liberty Hall in Dublin, where they campaigned for better treatment from the FAI. And uh, look, they're reaping the benefits of it now, playing in the the biggest tournament in women's football. It's only going to lead to bigger and better things for the, the women's game in Ireland. Completely agree. Uh, we've been talking there at length about the men's senior team and a distinct lack of leadership through a spine of the side last year. Can't say the same uh, for the women's senior side. I mean, look at the perseverance, as you said, Liberty Hall being the marquee event here. But even I'm thinking in terms of the Ukraine game and the Euro qualifiers, where should have gotten results, that would have broken most teams' progression and development. But this group of players and management are really evolved and improved. And I think the Swedish performances particularly, we had seen that in the previous European qualification campaign, particularly against Germany. Granted, the results didn't go away, but you could see progression there. It evolved in European qualification. The Swedish performances were very good. And then Finland, another noted team in women's football, getting victories home and away. That was huge for the programme here, for the senior women's team. And then taking care of business, which in the previous European campaign we haven't done. (laughs) We think about Greece away in that European qualification campaign. So, again, all credit to Vera Pau and the team. Again, they won't be lacking in leadership here. I know it's probably a very daunting World Cup qualification group that they have with Australia, Canada, and also uh, Nigeria. But I think to be perfectly fair here, look, with the leadership they have, nothing phases this group of um, players and management. And I expect them to be on the front foot in the opening day of this World Cup in Australia and all the best to them. Going back to the the negatives, you know, Stephen Kenny has been in charge now for 30 games and we're still waiting for that team identity to emerge. I think he's a bit of a, an idealist when it comes to football. He, we know from watching his Dundalk team how he wants the game to be played, but we haven't seen the team play anything like that and if anything we've seen several different styles and I don't know if you could say any of them have been a success team selections have been inconsistent, team formations have been inconsistent when you think back to some of the great teams that we've seen over the last 10 or or 20 years, Chelsea under Mourinho Manchester United under Alex Ferguson, Barcelona under Guardiola, they all had a very identifiable pattern of play, uh, approach to the game and uh, team identity and we have none of that right now. After 30 games, that's something that really should be emerging and uh, we, I, I just don't see it at all. Obviously, he's tried to strip the team down to the bare minimum of, and then rebuild it. But he hasn't done enough with the players, I don't think. I don't think he's brought in the right players. Like, if you look at, the, as you said, 30 games, too many of those games have been trying to figure out how to get this Ireland team ticking or how to get them to play. Like, usually when a manager takes over a team, you know exactly the kind of style he's taken over. Like, if you name any of the 
League of Ireland managers, Premier League managers, managers around Europe. You can name like 50, 60 managers and you could nearly tell you exactly what way they play or what style they play. And we kind of thought, as you mentioned, we knew that when Kenny came in, but he, he just he doesn't seem to have been able to transfer it into this team. I don't see the reason why, because he's had such a, a variety of players. You know, he's had every type of striker, he's had every type of midfielder, we've had every type of defender as well. So it's a worry, and I think it comes down to his ability. People don't want to say it, but I think maybe the job might be too big for him. And maybe international management doesn't suit him, because as I mentioned earlier in the pod, he is more of a hands-on coach. And would he be better dealing with the team that he has on the training field five days a week and then a match at the weekend? I would say yes. I'd say he'd get way more out of that team. He'd have way more time to to impose his ideas on them and his structure of play. But with an international team, it, it just doesn't seem to be working out for him. Maybe it will disqual- in the disqualification campaign this year. I can't see it myself personally. I, I think it, at the end of the day, it just comes down to ability of the manager and the coaching team. Yeah, I think your last point in terms of, I think it's the full package. Both the manager and the backroom staff have to be at one. They have to be at unison in terms of their vision, what they want the team, the players to do. I'm thinking of the likes of CJ Hamilton here, guys. At the start of the, the calendar year last year was being called up. Hasn't been called up recently. I mean, players have come and gone. Will Keane as well. What has been the purpose or rationale of bringing players in if they're not being used? I mean, it's this kind of selection that would raise questions if you were a player within the squad in terms of what are the management and the backroom staff thinking in terms of bringing certain players in and not utilising them. So I think there's definitely been a bit of a confusion at times in terms of our game plan and how we want to play it. I think certainly the backroom personnel departures haven't helped matters, particularly Anthony Barry, who I thought was making a very significant impact with the side, particularly our midfield, our box-to-box play was far more evolved with Anthony Barry in, in charge. I mean, John Hughes, you couldn't really evaluate. He was only in for a game or two, and then Birmingham City came calling. But I think we have to kind of get back to the ethos. And again, as I say, it's very unclear. I mean, we were very pass-orientated towards the latter end of the World Cup qualification campaign. We were going, varying it out a little bit, bringing the likes of Obene in early, with early balls down the flanks. That kind of stopped during the Nations League. So again, what's our, what's our go-to? And particularly what's our plan B as well? Because international management, you need some pragmatism in your approach. If your plan A is not working, you need another plan B. And I think we perfectly saw that in Hampden Park when Scotland evolved their game plan against Ireland in the, at halftime, bridging a 1-0 uh, deficit with a 2-1 win. These are the fine margins in international football. And after three years, I don't think we've seen enough pragmatism from the backroom staff and the manager as a whole. You mentioned Will Keane there. Like he's brought Will Keane into the squad. I don't know how many times, and I'm pretty sure that there's been occasions where he's thrown centre backs up front with Will Keane sitting on the bench the last ten minutes. What What must the player think at that stage? Well, what, well, what's the manager thinking? That is yeah. probably one of our more identifiable threats at the moment. Pushing Shane Duffy up front late on. Why is Will Keane in the squad then? Kenny did make a point of mentioning his heading a bit. I think around the time when he first came into the squad against Portugal um, if he thinks that the, the Wigan striker is this good in the air that Warren's mentioning in a press conference why not utilise that why push a defender up front yeah exactly 
And I'm thinking of the guys like Mark Sykes, who's trying to break into the side. I'm thinking the likes of Will Smallbone, you know, that Malta game. I mean, it's a nothing friendly. God, just brought him on for five, ten minutes. Get a little bit of experience in international football. I think it's just the player personnel side of things at times leaves a few question marks. I'm just wondering in terms of the squad he's going to pick for the Latvian and French games now, because I think we kind of know maybe a nucleus of maybe five, six guys who will start the game. But I think after that, then, I think the squad is kind of up for grabs, I think. Well, I think he's a huge opportunity now to bring in the players he wants to bring in or should want to bring in and not be scared that he's going to get the chop. Because that's the sense I got with the last game, the last competitive game against Armenia. I, I thought he was bringing in these players because... You know, they're senior and they're probably dependable, like the likes of Horan, and I can, I can count on them. But like, you know, the, the general reaction to the draw for the next qualifying is, oh, well, we're writing it off altogether. Now, I think that's wrong, but most of the fans would definitely give him a break if we did nothing against France and Holland. So now is the time to throw Joe Hodge in against them or bring in Will Smallbone or bring in or start Evan Ferguson instead of playing lads who are playing in League One and they're playing in and out maybe, their international career is gone. Like, now is the time to do it. So, it would be very interesting to see if he does. If he doesn't, well then, oh, I don't know, I think, it's, I think it's poor on his behalf. But I suppose, as you said, we'll just have to wait and see. But Okay, if we move on to the positive, that is the emerging players that we're seeing across Europe, whereas traditionally we'd be watching the reserve teams across the UK to see what how Irish players are performing there. In over the last two years, we've started to see more and more Irish players emerge across Europe. In Germany, in Spain, um, and now in uh, in Italy and well soon we hope Portugal. We think the likes of the likes of Liam Carrigan going from League of Ireland straight to to play in, in Italy and performing well up until his unfortunate injury. That's a massive boost for the league. The pathway for 16-year-olds to the UK is closed now for the majority of players in Ireland. The fact that they can look across Europe and maybe see the pathway to a senior club at some of the big clubs across Europe, that's a massive boost, not just for players, but the league, and hopefully for the, the national side one day as well. Yeah, totally agree with you, Joe. I, I think it's a good move. Sometimes I'm a little bit in dread when I hear of all these young Irish kids, their kids, moving over to England into academies, and that would be that. I think the mindset in terms of the footballing philosophy in continental Europe personally is far better than in England. Probably will get flat for that, but I think the fact of the matter is, for the likes of a Banqua, Heffernan, Ibrazelli, Kerrigan, I thought was... We'll be coming back into Como's team fairly soon. So I think from that perspective, it is, uh, you know, it's imperative, I think, for the, for these up-and-coming prospects, even to spend maybe a year or two, even domestically in Ireland, to get those um, moves to continental Europe. Because it is a good base. It's a good learning curve. Particularly when you think of Heffernan, particularly in AC Milan. What a culture. What a football club. The, the, this caliber of training that he's getting as well. I think certain clubs there as well are really kind of equipping them 
for life experiences as well that I think is maybe coming in a little bit little, too little too late, particularly in UK clubs. So all, all power to these guys, and uh, it's, a, it's a very progressive move, I think. It's it's great to see so many Irish players in in so many different leagues doing well, as you said. I think it comes down to experience as well. Like I always put it back to if you're a young player and let's say you've the option to move to you know, a League One team where, okay, the football, the standard of football is good and you can cut your teeth. But let's say the likes of a Celtic came in for you. Like, I, where would you rather play? Like, obviously money comes into it, but if money didn't come into it, would you rather play in League One or would you rather play for Celtic in front of, you know, 60,000 people week in, week out, possibly play European games? And this is what I think a lot of these younger players moving abroad are looking at now. Like we, we look at Ebiselli, he made his debut against AC Milan in the San Siro in Serie A against the, against the champions. That year. like that's massive. Imagine you're 20, you've moved from Derby, and you're coming on in the in the San Siro against you know one of the most famous clubs in the world. And that experience is priceless for a player at that age. And I think that's one of the huge positives for these young players going abroad, they get more chances because most teams abroad as well, European teams, they take, you know, qualifying for the smaller European teams or uh, tournaments a lot more seriously as well. So it's just, it's when it comes to experience, I think it's great. And if they do come back and they want to, you know, they want to make some money or they want to play in England, like look at Josh Cullen, like, you know, you wonder in the back of your head, are these players getting notice? Well, now I know the manager obviously is Vincent Company, but he would have been noticed anyway with his exploits out in Anderlecht. So, yeah, I think it's positive. They're getting games. That's the important thing. They're getting games at high levels. They're not playing under-23 football in the Premier League on a Wednesday night. They're getting games, and that's that's the main thing. Our final negative of 2022 is one of the big ongoing negatives that we've had about Stephen Kenny since he first took over the national side, it's that he can't seem to change his tactics mid-game. He's very slow to react to going behind or to not going ahead. And, you know, I think that the substitutions that he makes, and more importantly, when he makes them, is a symptom of this. I don't remember a substitute coming on and changing a game. Maybe you could argue... Robbie Brady did come on against Armenia and scored the last-minute winner, but my counter-argument to that is we shouldn't need a last-minute winner against Armenia at home. Conor Horan came on against the game, Joe. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> Conor Horan did come on, and he did change the game. After three years in charge, after 30 games, and you know the, the experience that he got at under-21 level before that, you know I don't think Stephen Kenny can claim inexperience or a lack of knowledge about the international game. This is something that, you know, that we've identified that a lot of Ireland fans have identified during Stephen Kenny's reign. And look, it's something that I've, it's something that I don't want to be complaining about in 12 months time. Although to be perfectly honest, I don't think we'd be complaining about Republic of Ireland manager Stephen Kenny in 12 months time either. Yeah, I think Mark hit the nail on the head when we were discussing the Scotland game earlier. Like you saw um, Steve Clark take stock of what was happening on the pitch, make the changes, and basically took over the game in the second half and 1-2-1. It's something that we haven't seen Kenny do. 
He's very late to make substitutions. He's very late to see what's going on in front of him. He's very late to see patterns of play. Sometimes he doesn't see them at all, which, again, I think, as Marcus said, again, it comes back to your coaching ticket as well because that's what they're there for. I just think it comes back to that he just doesn't seem that suited for international football. When you watch him in interviews after games, he's not a great speaker and he struggles to get his point across. So I would imagine he can be like that in front of players as well and he might need more time. So that that comes into it as well. But it just, you know, you can break it down whatever way you want, but it, it's not that he doesn't have the options on the bench. We already mentioned throwing centre-backs up top instead of bringing Will Keane on. Like, this is basic stuff and he hasn't grasped it or doesn't seem to be able to grasp it. So I don't think we'll be having to worry about that situation in 12 months. I think you're right. I think the evolution of the side, I mean, it's put up or shut up for Stephen Kenny and the backroom staff now. Going into early 2023, I think their, seal, their fate will be sealed quite early if things don't go according to plan. Again, from a backroom staff perspective, I'm, I'm just wondering in terms of training ground, the vision, the ethos, but as well that in-game management when opposition international coaches, anyone worth their salt, will change things up. They'll evaluate after 15, 20 minutes sounding the other team out and will make adjustments and just again there is a bit of a vulnerability there I think in terms of some adjustments that we've probably seen during the year I think the Hamden Park fix was the one that exposed them the most I thought where Scotland were very direct in that opening period were conceding possession at a rate of knots Ireland passing through the lines but again you have to give credit to Steve Clark the backroom staff they realised what they needed to do. I think they hauled off Lyndon Dykes as well in their halftime. They went a little bit more football-focused, passing through the lines. And look, within five minutes of the first half, Callum Hendry basically asked to come in, drive forward into a cross. No one tracking runners from Republic of Ireland. They spotted that at halftime, I would say. And we're back on one all. Now you can talk all you want about Troy Parrott's chance at one all. Could have changed the game. But again, we're kind of hanging on a little bit defensively. Christie's penalty, one of these things. But again, we're, you know, from the damage has been done, particularly in the adjustments at halftime. And I think for me, that's kind of the key. I think Ukraine as well, you can see the equaliser. There was more probing down that flank that caused that equaliser for Ireland. Again, international management's all about pragmatism and making the adjustments at the right time. I think of the Serbia game in Belgrade, the World Cup qualification, not being able to identify danger and react to it. The only thing I could think here is, guys, does he not feel that he has the personnel to change it up immediately? That would be the only thing I would be thinking here, because otherwise the international game reading needs to be so much better going in, particularly against a French team that's face it, a very youthful prospective team coming to Dublin. They're going to be looking for a result, so I think our game management has to be so spot on uh, during that. Otherwise, I think we could be in for a long night. We're not a savvy team. He doesn't manage the substitutions well, but he doesn't manage games very well either. Like I think we talked about it in the last pod when we were going through the individual fixtures. But if we look at we take the Armenia game at home. Scotland went two 0 up against Armenia in the first half when they played them in Hampden Park, and the game finished two 0 they killed the game. They had their two goals. They sat back. They just killed it. That was it. It was done. They knew how to. Whereas we don't seem to know how to manage games like that. Probably could have gone the 90 minutes without making 
maybe only one substitute for that Armenia game if the team knew how to kill the game off. But there was times in that game where we were attacking, attack, 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 and then we were exposed at the back. There was obviously the three-on-two situation with like when they were down to nine men, but we, we don't seem to manage games very well. And Joe mentioned earlier in the in the pod that we, we do concede goals at bad times after half time or just after scoring ourselves. But it's it's just that thing of not being able to manage games, not being savvy, maybe take the ball, maybe just, you know, a bit of bit of gamesmanship, just slow everything down. Have the you know, if you're a team that has you know, that wants to pass the ball around and hold possession, have the conviction to just play the ball around in your half and let teams come on to you if you're two nil up or one nil up. And then maybe try and 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 hit them on the break, but that that again that comes to how your team is set up. We're not a mature team when it comes to situations like that, and I think that's it makes the team brittle then as well because if one goes in, it's very easy for the second one to go in shortly after it, as we've seen. And again, you could probably give them the case in point that look, he's blooding in new players, but a few of these players now have ten, twenty caps on, under their belt now, so are getting experience at that international and senior level where they're seeing and learning from other opposition of how they've played against the Republic of Ireland. So you'd hope, again, player feedback into the backroom management kind of really does solidify stuff. Maybe at times the Ireland players should be playing what's in front of them as well a little bit more than really being kind of coached to death in terms of applying a particular style of play. Um, So... Again, I think there's learnings here for both players and management here, but I think a little bit of a concern anyway, uh, definitely, Joe, just in terms of the game and game management. And again, we do have the squad players now, particularly in the middle of the park, where we're going to need them, particularly in March. I can see an awful lot of work rate and effort coming in, particularly in the midfield two or midfield three. We're going to have to make subs pretty sharpish, probably early in the second half to keep that work rate up and tempo up. Are we prepared to do that? And that's where our backroom staff and their manager have been paid the, the big bucks to do so. You know, looking at the, the coaching history for the, the national team, you know, Stephen Kenny is on 30 games. He's just behind Brian Kerr on 33. And I expect by the end of the year, he'll probably overtake uh, Owen Hand on 39. I think he will be in charge for the qualifying campaign for Euro 2024. 20, so eight games against Netherlands, France, Greece and Gibraltar. Uh, home and away and you know there will be uh, friendlies played across the year as well starting with Latvia in March you know he's got comfortably the worst uh, win percentage of any manager to have been in charge for more than 20 games so unless we qualify or come really really close to qualifying it's going to be hard to justify keeping him on as manager beyond the end of 2023 on that note, we'll finish with our our final positive from 2022, and that was their performance against Scotland at home. A performance that we haven't seen from an Ireland team in a long time. A quality of goals that we haven't seen probably in the last 20 years. And going into the game on the back of two losses in our opening two games in the Nations League campaign, no one expected us to bully Scotland in the manner that we did, least of all the Ireland fans. And uh, despite everything that we have said about the manager and the team, I feel like we should acknowledge it and uh, include it in in this review. It's important important that we do 
acknowledge the positives and I do feel that that performance you know is a, is an absolutely massive positive from last year. It was an unbelievable game and I'm going to do my best to pretend it wasn't an outlier for the whole year. <laughs> no, no, it was a great game. It was also the first game I met the two E in person. We all attended. I got to move down at half time and see the Obafemi goal up close as well. It was what everyone thought would be the fruits of Stephen Kenny's labour, what it would look like if you were to think of what when he took over, if you thought, oh, maybe in a couple of years, what would we be like? That's what everyone thought we would be like. Totally outplaying Scotland. Now, they had a couple of chances in the first half. Shane Duffy had a few wobblers in front of the goal trying to pass the ball around. But besides that, you know, it was a comfortable win with some great goals. I thought we'd kick on from there. We haven't. But if you take the result on its own, it was great. You know, it was brilliant. And again, I think we talked about the goals that we have scored and, and how great they've been. And, and there was Troy Parrots and Obafemi's are two of the best goals we've scored in years. Like, I'll always go back to 2020. What was your favourite goal of 2020 international goal, Joe and Mark? Did we only score one goal in 2020? We only scored one goal, and it was a Shane Duffy header in the 93rd minute. So, like, when you're, score- when you're beating Scotland 3-0, you have to remember those times as well. We went a full year, we were only scoring one goal. So, when, when you know, it's a derby game, and we've absolutely battered the opposition. So, yeah, it was, it was brilliant. It was just a great day. It was a great day in the Aviva. Everyone was up for it. I completely agree, Phil. You know, even the occasion beforehand. Said this in previous podcast episode felt a little bit different didn't it in the ground maybe it's because Scotland it's local derby essentially maybe form guy went out the window a little bit and I thought the players maybe played a little bit what was in front of them as well after a bit of a shaky start let's be brutally honest first 15 minutes there's a few wobblers as you said Phil but take nothing away from Ireland after the Adam Brown goal some of the link up play I thought Jason Malumby as well was absolutely brilliant in terms of midfield what his capability his potential uh, both winning tackles, linking play. You saw Nathan Collins really bowing up forward. The partnership between Troy Power and Michael Abafemi on the day was absolutely exquisite as well, guys. I mean, are we going to see two better goals all year, really, with those two? I mean, Parrot's goal, Abafemi's ball in behind, absolutely exquisite. And then what can you say about Michael Abafemi's um, efforts? Beating Craig Gordon all ends up. I mean, amazing finish. And I mean, we could have had four or five as well, guys. So, you know, we kind of completely bossed the game. And and that's, I think, maybe the frustration here. I think we can see where the potential is when Hulk Varen and senior team do get on the front foot and get a stranglehold in the game. They have the ability to do so. Um, so I think it's more frustration that, as you say, we did have immediately the Ukrainian game where we drew one all and maybe could have won that game. But again, that was a marvellous day. And hopefully we can rediscover that in March against France and the Aviva to really kind of build up our European qualification campaign hopes. We're just looking at a, another positive, I suppose it would be Nathan Collins' move to Wolves and how highly he's rated and the money he's gone for. I know money isn't everything in football, but it certainly is in the Premier League when it comes to transfers and, and for a team to spend that much and take a chance on him. And, you know, I think they've been rewarded with it. He got man of the match against Liverpool last week. He he's going straight to the top, and I think we mentioned talk of captains earlier. Maybe by the time Coleman's finished and Egan's pushing on a small bit, uh, I think you could be looking at a future captain of Ireland definitely. And it's been a great year for him. He feels like a natural successor. He does feel like 
a prospective captain in the making for Republic of Ireland. He has all the attributes. He's a skillful footballer, very strong defensively, good pace, good game reader. I suppose for me as well, you know, the emergence of, like I said, the Bazunus, also Mark Travers with Bournemouth as well in the Premier League. You know, hopefully, you know, we do have a good goalkeeping core with Cueving Kelleher. Maybe with Kelleher, there's a decision time there in terms of Liverpool Football Club. Uh, where he plies his trade, given Allison got the nod in the FA Cup game against Wolverhampton. That's beside the point. But I think we're seeing emerging players all the time, guys, aren't we? He'd like to Coven- Connor Coventry and be very excited to see getting some sort of way integrated into that Ireland senior squad. We definitely need that robust midfield player to really complement the likes of a Josh Cullen there. So maybe the Will Smallbones of this Joe Hodge would you spring a surprise and select him for the French game? If manager is picking on form, then Joe Hodge has to be well up there, doesn't he? I think if he continues the way he's going, if he doesn't play a half an hour in that game, it's a disgrace. I think by then he'll be first choice in that Wolves midfield. The way he's going, he will be. He was brilliant against Liverpool. You know, they went out of the cup. He showed his maturity stepping up to take that penalty. And I think he, he's he's getting his opportunity and he's really grasping it. I just can't see how he how he'd be ignored. Like for who? Obviously Knight and Malumbi are there and you'll want Cullen and Hendrick, but like he'd have to be the fifth option. Yeah. I don't I think it's crazy if he's not. Plus the intriguing factor now of Evan Ferguson if he continues his form as well with Brighton and Hove Albion. Um again should be probably a lock for the senior squad at least anyway. Uh it'd be interesting to see how Stephen Kenny would play that in terms of the French game. Uh, whether he would play Evan Ferguson from start or would he be loyal to the likes of Troy Parrott or Obafemi or Obenya. So I think from that perspective, it's uh, I think it's pretty exciting, the emerging talent that is coming through. And I think it's just a case of that March date in France is going to be the key pivotal point here of the year. If we can get a result out of that, I think confidence builds, but it really hinges on that French game, doesn't it? Yeah, that date's coming up fast. It's a little under... Two months away as we t- as we speak. If anything, how fast 2022 seemed to pass us by. Uh, it's got to be March before we know where we are. We hope you've enjoyed the second part of our review of 2022, drilling down into what we felt were the top five positives and negatives that deserves greater scrutiny than we were able to spend on them in uh in the first part of the episode. I'd like to thank Mark and Phil for joining me again. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Hawkeye Psychic, uh, and you can follow at Philip Flanagan. Uh, you can follow me at Irish underscore abroad. It is going to be a little while before the squad is announced to face France and Latvia. So we'll examine a few other topics that require discussion before that rolls around. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon.